As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Soccer Show Weekend Review. On this episode, we'll look back on a weekend where Oli Gunasolskiar was like me at the roulette table, not in control of the wheel and helplessly watching the ball go where it shouldn't. It was a weekend oh where God. Barcelona were like a Texas Hold'em dealer. They had lots of cards and they flopped at the end. Into Milan, they were at the blackjack table. They were smart to stick on 20, Hakan Chalanolu, but didn't see the twist coming from an own goal and a penalty miss. And Borussia Dortmund were just like every single one of my Vegas visits, they tried their best, but ultimately didn't know what they were doing. They left empty-handed, and they quite—they can't quite live up to the buy-in, buy-in, buy-in. Yeah, that kind of worked. My name's Ryan <laughs> Bailey, and joining me today is a man who might be a gambler. He's certainly not a football rambler. Taylor Rockwell, hello. Hello. Much like Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's tenure at Manchester United, that introduction started out great and then fizzled out a little bit by the end. <laughs> Buy-in sounded better written down than out loud. I've learned that now, Taylor. Thank you very much. That was great, man. That was well done. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, also here, Taylor, is a man who spent all his gambling budget on a soccer ball that cost $170, Graham Rutherford. <laughs> that, you, you said the quiet bit out loud, Ryan. That's, you're not meant to tell people that. Yes, I did. Uh, but it is my... <laughs> Favorite soccer ball since the Nike Scorpion ball. It's uh, it's crazy, but I kind of love that love it about it for anyone who doesn't know. It's the 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 Premier League Winter Ball, which is kind of very pop arty. It's very unusual for the Premier League, but it's going to sit in my office and never get kicked outside because who wants to kick something so beautiful? When you explain to your wife that you spent that amount of money on a ball, do you also use the "it's my favorite ball since the Scorpion one" explanation? How does that work out? Um, you're you're making a presumption there, Taylor, that I explained or go. even <laughs> revealed to my wife that I had bought a soccer ball for one hundred and seventy five dollars. Uh, it's a business that, that, expense. It's a business yeah, expense. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Charge that through the company. There you go. Well, now I guess we know the good lady, Miss Rutherford, doesn't listen to the podcast, and if she does, you're in trouble, Graham. <laughs> but uh, I hope you're happy with your investment. The Premier League flight soccer ball, which made its debut this weekend, honed over eight years and seventeen hundred hours of testing 
Graham. Molded grooves and a grippy texture reduce unexpected movement through the air to help you put the ball where you want it, which for you is in a nice case in your office. They, yeah, they tested it for eight years. Is that true? Owned over eight years. That's what the blurb says. I don't know. I mean, I don't know if I believe that. And and how they just they just introduced VAR one season, but they're testing soccer balls for eight years. <laughs> I mean, you can extrapolate that. They've been testing soccer balls for like over 108 years, haven't they, really? They've had a round ball and they've just been developing yeah, ever since. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Here we are. Yeah, they, yeah, they've not they've not just uh, made clear what soccer balls they've been testing over eight years. I guess could just be all of them. Indeed. Well, you have one of them, Graham, and a mighty fine one. It is well done for spending your uh, disposable income thusly. <laughs> uh, rounding out our team is a man who punted this weekend on the New York Red Bulls not to make the playoffs. He punted that at the start of the season, I should say. They sure showed you, Joe Lowry, didn't they? <laughs> They showed me and all the other folks out there that didn't believe in them. Well done, New York Red Bulls. You win this round. Yeah, so the New York Red Bulls are personally calling out Joseph Lowry on their Twitter feed uh, for his prediction at the start of the season that they'd finished 10th. They finished in the playoff places in 7th, Joe. Two points higher than 10th. Take that, Joe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was it was a great end of the season for the Red Bulls. The beginning and, and really the middle part of the season, really not so good. It took about everything they had to get back above the playoff line and good for them right I enjoy watching this team under Gerhard Struber um, it, it, from my end at least it's all good natured and I think from theirs as well you rescued that comment you're about to get another mention on their feed before <laughs> you put that positive note at the end there Joe well done <laughs> Oh, thank you. I tried. I did notice a few other teams that, um, with the we kept receipts kind of tweets, Joe. Uh, how do you feel about that? I mean, not personally being called out, but the, the it feels slightly petty, maybe. It's a little petty, but at the same time, it is really good content because there are a few things. This is one of my my long held beliefs. There are a few things that fans of a lot of these these teams enjoy more than rallying together against the man. And in this case, the man is whoever's writing about them for MLSsoccer.com or rather not writing about them for MLSsoccer.com. And I, I think it is good engagement and it is a nice rallying cry. So in, in a way, I don't really have any problem with the pettiness, Ryan. <laughs> Wonderful to hear because that's pettiness is my middle name, Joe, and uh, you'll be hearing more <laughs> of that uh, on this podcast. And you'll also be hearing plenty about the weekend's action. As we mentioned, we had the Manchester Derby this weekend. We had the Milan Derby. We had some action in the, uh, the Bundesliga. League with Leipzig taking on Borussia Dortmund and of course MS, MLS, MSL, MLS can't speak today, MLS deadline day uh, which we will cover also on this fine podcast gents. A bit of housekeeping before we start though, uh, Graham is a little poorly today so we might be checking with some proof of life uh, every so often <laughs> Graham if you hear a little cough listener it's just Graham um, maybe regretting buying a very expensive ball, I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, I, I wasn't sure if I was going to make it today like Ronaldo before the 98 World Cup final. I was in and then I was out again and then I got I got drugged up and now I'm in the team again, but <laughs> only in body, not in spirit. <laughs> <laughs> Nike involved in both instances, Graham. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> All right, why don't we start off, gentlemen, with the Premier League. Uh, on Sunday, West Ham leapfrogged Liverpool into third place after beating them 3-2 on that Sunday night thriller at the London Stadium, the Hammer Bowl, if you will. Uh, West Ham now level on points with Man City at the top. Champions League might be a thing for them, Taylor Rockwell. Liverpool's 25-game unbeaten run is over. I was thinking about this, Taylor. You know Manchester United, we're going to talk about them in a second. They've got a bit of a situation with their manager. What about this guy at West Ham? He's doing really well. 
Yeah, I mean, he seems like a young up-and-comer. He could really get the, the team going, and it's always nice to have a Scottish person in charge of Manchester United. It feels appropriate. So, yeah, I don't see how that could possibly go wrong. I'm glad we're starting off by talking about West Ham. We did have uh, a couple tweets at us asking if we were ever going to mention West Ham and what they've been doing this season. I propose that once we finish the upcoming conversation about Manchester United, we don't talk about them again for a very long time. And so, for example, I think two weeks after the international break, it's... Manchester United Chelsea and it's also Man City West Ham and I would say that we should maybe cover West Ham uh, Man City that one might be a little bit more exciting or at least uh, unpredictable I feel like we can predict how uh, Chelsea Man United is gonna go I'm just picturing Lenny in the Simpsons going Man United are about to do something stupid and we have to cover them again yep yep that feels about the way it's been going (laughs) that feels about the way it's been going Well, uh, we certainly should give West Ham some coverage as they are on a tremendous run. As I mentioned, ending Liverpool's 25-game unbeaten run. That run is over. Do you know what else is over, Graham? Daniel Farker, relieved of his duties hours after uh, his first win of the season, the 2-1 win at Brentford, uh, the fourth managerial sacking of the season. Uh, And Graham Rutherford tweeting, justice for Billy Gilmore. (laughs) Yeah, I was growing increasingly bitter about that whole situation. So I I can't deny that I I was uh, quite pleased that he was sacked on Saturday, despite Norwich winning uh, against Brentford on on the very same day. But... Yeah, it's madness to me that Billy Gilmore is not is not getting game time for a team that's at the bottom of the Premier League. I genuinely think he's a potentially world-class player. At least he'll be fit for Scotland for our, our, our very important game against Moldova on Friday night. I guess that's that's a, a, a bright the bright side of his situation at the moment. Indeed it is. Plenty of potential there. Uh, Daniel Farker wasn't the only manager relieved of his duties in the Premier League this weekend. Dean Smith also went uh, after Aston Villa's Friday night loss at Southampton. Uh, Villa on a five-game losing streak. Uh, the nominees, uh, Graham, for the job there, apparently, I'm reading, Casper Hulmund, the Denmark manager, Ralph yep. uh, Rabbit Hutch, Ralph Hassenhuttel, and Stevie <laughs> G. Hmm, what do you think of that? Yeah. Yep, I think uh, it makes sense. I think Steve Gerrard and, and his coaching team as a whole, I think that would be key if he gets Michael Beale and Gary McAllister along with him to Villa. I can see that working. Steve Gerrard is a very good organiser as a manager and he has a bit of aura. He gets players, he got players to Rangers that ordinarily wouldn't have gone to Rangers because he's Steve Gerrard and I think Villa could make good use of that. So yeah, I, he, he, was, he would have been my first pick if I was Newcastle and I think um, Villa should be going for him as well. Interesting. And did I see Frank Lampard linked to Norwich as well? Is that just my imagination? Uh, yeah, I think Frank Lampard as a manager is just a figment of everyone's imagination, to be honest, <laughs> by this point. I think whoever takes the Norwich job is accepting a relegation on their uh, resume at this point. So it's a, a tricky one to take. Uh, but uh, speaking of Lampard, speaking of Chelsea, they stay top despite a 1-1 draw at Burnley, which uh, Thomas Tuchel in the interviews afterwards, I was watching on uh, BBC Match of the Day, he seemed alarmingly happy uh, with that draw, which does keep them top still. And it was Antonio Conte's uh, first Premier League game with Tottenham. Uh, he kicked that rain off, Taylor, with the most Nuno performance possible, a 0-0 draw at Everton with no shots on target. Yay? Yay. Yeah, I mean, I think for, first game in charge for Conte is going to change the system and is all about kind of reinstilling belief. I have a feeling that though the results didn't necessarily change this weekend, I think they will in the very near future, just because once you have a coach coming in with that sort of intensity, with that passion, there is that belief. There are those stories about different players reaching out to former teammates who've played under Conte and all being told he's going to make you better, Regulon being the key one there. So I think... Maybe the result wasn't as like new manager bounce as Spurs fans would have hoped for, but I think they'll be getting that uh, response pretty quickly. 
Yeah, and to be fair, this game, not long after he took over the reins, mm-hmm. he hasn't even got the stick that he's going to poke Harry Kane with while saying, do something, <laughs> do something at training. I think that arrives uh, today, actually. So maybe uh, an uptick in form from there. Uh, Joe, the biggest story of the Premier League weekend came from Brighton, Newcastle. Uh, Lewis Dunk was forced to go in goal when Robert Sanchez was sent off uh, in the 1-1 draw there. Uh, Lewis Dunk uh, kept a clean sheet in goal as well. I mean, he went in goal in the 92nd minute. But Joe, a clean sheet, is there anything more wonderful than an outfield player going in goal? It's a beautiful thing. It's like an offensive lineman catching a touchdown in the NFL. Just things you don't <laughs> expect to happen, but you absolutely love it. Lewis Dunk is also a giant of a human being, if I remember correctly. So mm. he's got, maybe he's got the build for it. I don't know, Ryan. Yeah. Well, he didn't get dunked on in goal. Did I use uh, that terminology correctly? Yeah, you did. I just didn't like it. that's the story of my life thank you very much Uh, why don't we take a a look at the Manchester Derby though Man United Uh, nil uh, Man City 2 the 186th Manchester Derby no less an own goal from Eric Bailly followed up by uh, a Bernardo Silva strike Taylor I should come to you on this one. A mm-hmm. rather one-sided derby yep. here. The stat that's doing the rounds, Man United having more shots on target against their own goalkeeper than against ah. Man City with the own goal there. And uh, it was Lindelof who tried, to, trying his best to get another one as well. Uh, not great to follow this up. Well, the, the 5-0 loss uh, against Liverpool is not that far in the rear view. Maybe that Tottenham game was a bit of an anomaly at this point. Your thoughts, your opening thoughts on Manchester United's performance. Uh, my opening thoughts mirror those of Jack Pitbrook, who wrote a good article for The Athletic, uh, which can be summarized as this was City's easiest ever win at Manchester United. And I think that is pretty accurate. I think they had a pretty, I shouldn't say basic because it's really difficult to play soccer simply, but I think City had a pretty straightforward game plan that Manchester United did not respond to. And then basically it was City completely dominant for Certainly the first half and then sort of just kind of easing off a bit in the second half, but knowing that Manchester United weren't really going to be able to do much. And I think the other stat that I saw that was pretty telling was uh, Manchester United had, I think, four touches in City's box. I think that was the number. Yikes. Which is the lowest uh, number of t- touches for Manchester United in the opposition box since Optus started tracking that stat in 2008. <laughs> and the second fewest has also been this season. So I would say there are some statistical uh, points that show you how bad this game was. And I think if you watch this game, you could see how bad it was because City really had had their way with Manchester United and were pretty much able to do whatever they wanted. They certainly did. Joe, I come to you. I want to find out what you thought Man United were doing in this game. We had the back three uh, back for this one. Didn't quite work out. It seemed like the, the, the outstanding thing for this game was how little pressure, uh, sorry, how much um, free reign City had on the flanks. There was no mm. pressure on them at all. But for both goals, that they could just jog wherever they wanted in those, in those both uh, offensive flanks there, defending very poor for, for much of the game. What was the plan, I suppose, is my question, Joe. Ryan, I think a lot of your analysis there is pretty spot on, specifically regarding the wings for Manchester City and the half spaces I'll toss in there as well. Manchester United were in this 5-3-2-5-3-1-1 shape that at times even looked like a 5-diamond one with Ronaldo as, as the one on the top of the shape and then Greenwood a little bit deeper underneath him or connected to the midfield. Either way, they had stacked numbers centrally, which didn't really help them all that much. And they left the wings open, it seems to me, on purpose from Ole, right? When you have that much space on either side of your midfield three, there's 
there's going to be opportunities for Manchester City to exploit that. And, and for, for Manchester United's sake here, I, I do understand to an extent what they're trying to accomplish. You pack the middle. You don't extend all that high, all that often. For the most part, I thought Manchester United were pretty deep and they were pretty reactive, really prioritizing the, the central, the, the vertical strip in the middle of the field and trying to keep City out of those spaces. The challenge with that, though, is that Manchester City are one of the most dangerous teams in the world at moving the ball from out to in, right? They're so dangerous with the ball in the wings because they're so effective at cutting it back or whipping in those Jao Cancelo in-swinging crosses from the half spaces or, or, or Kevin De Bruyne doing the similar thing on the right side. Cancelo did it on the left side in this game. They're so effective at moving the ball from outside to inside that when Manchester United gave them all that space in the half spaces and in the in, on the wings, it was no problem for City to work the ball from out to in, and it took Ole way too long, in my view, to adjust and get out of that back three slash back five. It really was a back five. To get out of that shape and move into the four at the back shape that we saw in the second half, by then the damage was done and this game was over. Yeah, and I think, I know what you mean, Joe, in the way that they were theoretically trying to defend. I think one one thing there would be that if you are going to sort of crowd everybody to one side of the pitch when City have the ball on that side, which I think Manchester United did pretty regularly, you still have to apply that pressure because... If you crowd everybody to one side, but you don't put the person on the ball under much pressure, especially in the Premier League, especially Man City, especially Man City under Pep Guardiola, they can play a 60-yard ball to the opposite side of the pitch, like on a dime, and then suddenly it's a 2v1, and that's what they did every single time. So much so that if you go back and watch the second goal, the entire, I think it's like a 20-some pass sequence, but it starts with Man City pinging a long ball from the right side of the pitch to the left side of the pitch. Manchester United shift over. And it really is Phil Foden almost being like, oh, it wasn't on this time. The overload wasn't on. And he drifts back inside and the ball gets worked back to the right side. And then they ping it over again. It's like they reset the trap. And that time it's open. And then Cancelo plays that ball in and it's pretty uncontested. And it felt like the move starts with nobody applying pressure. It ends with Aaron Wan-Bissaka not being able to close down and apply much pressure. And... To, to your uh, other point, Joe, I think you're absolutely right that it was pretty obvious pretty early, but Ole waiting until halftime, uh, maybe thinking 1-0 isn't the worst, then we can change it up, then City get the very late goal at the end of the first half, and that seemed to kind of completely throw Ole Gunnar Solskjaer off based on his uh, post-match press conference comments, but... uh yeah, I think that they probably could have seen that coming in and been a little bit more reactive or been a little bit more proactive in how they reacted. And and, and Taylor, you you mentioned some of the the things that went wrong there, and 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 the two of you have obviously focused on the system. And I'm not trying to absolve Solskjaer of any blame here because we all know that Solskjaer mm-hmm. clearly can't construct a defensive shape, and we saw a lot of that in this game. But some of the things you mentioned there for me are individual errors made by the United players, and a number of those errors were were incredible. I mean, the, you mentioned there the lack of pressure. Bruno for the first goal just doesn't close down Cancelo at all. He is he is jogging half pace over to Cancelo. Then the own goal is Eric Bailly kind of not shifting his feet quickly enough, not recognizing weirdly that the cross is coming into the box. So again, I don't really know how much of that can be blamed on on uh, Solskjaer. Then there's the Shaw mistake in particular, which for me is the biggest mistake of all. His lack of awareness that there's a runner behind him. His lack of communication with the goalkeeper. And, and, and there's also a, a chance for De Bruyne, De Bruyne that comes not long after the first goal where inexplicably Aaron Wan-Bissaka, who is in a, a, a straight defensive line, either with a four or a five, decides to do this strange half press where he steps up to, I can't quite remember who plays the ball. It's Foden that makes the run in behind. Um, it might have been Gundogan who plays the ball, but uh, uh, Wan-Bissaka steps up and that creates the, this, this, 
these this acres of space for Foden to run into and he just has to pick out um, De Bruyne in the middle. So, yes, Solskjaer's system is clearly not working and we've we've covered that in, at length, but my United players are also making really weird and bad decisions at the moment. I know what you I know what you mean, but I, I still I still think that is more representative of the system, to be honest, because I equate it with like if you're I'm going I, I don't know, I'm going castle uh, analogy here. If you have like all of your soldiers up on the castle walls and you're ready to defend and then there's just a hole in the wall that the like the other side can easily just come through and then your guys have to run down and defend that and then run back up and then run back down and you never actually plug the hole. Maybe it's the individuals who aren't doing the job they should be, but I think it's also a lack of awareness from the manager of, oh, there is this massive vulnerability and then not doing much to to deal with it. Because to your point about like uh, Juan Basaka sort of stepping but not really quite committing, that's also because in that situation I think it is actually a 3v1 because, yeah, Gundogan comes over, it's Cancelo, and then it's Phil Foden. But routinely it was a 2v1 on that left side and Juan Basaka has to come out. And I, and I don't really begrudge him for not being quite sure. Am I supposed to aggressively step to the person on the ball? Am I supposed to split the difference? Am I supposed to track the runner? I think that's the type of thing that individual instruction requires so that the players know and the team knows and I don't think there was much of that on the day well yeah that, that's fair enough Taylor but the castle was made of jello I think is the, the <laughs> problem that. isn't it uh, <laughs> and uh, when you when uh, Graham mentioned there the Luke Shaw thing where he looked behind him to check for Bernardo saw him there yeah. let him go anyway mm-hmm. it's like you can't coach you, I don't know how you coach that and Ollie's saying he said in his post-match interview this isn't how I wanted us to play yeah um that's on you dude yeah, I really enjoyed him being like, yeah, they, they really pressed us I, I, in a way that he said like th- that he was surprised by that. It's like, you've seen City play before, right? You know how this is going to go. I do not love that we live in a world where Michael Owen had the most accurate summary of <laughs> Manchester United at present. He said, all they're doing is covering for weaknesses. So they're looking at the next weekend. Is it a good team? Let's play a load of defenders. Is it a bad team? Let's play a load of attackers. He also made the point that Manchester United of old didn't cover for deficiencies. They basically stuck with the system, and if a player couldn't hang, then that player was surplus to requirement. They brought in somebody else, or they promoted somebody else, and and they figured out if that player could do it. Uh, the famous example being uh, Sir Alex Ferguson refusing to abandon his shape in the 8-2 win over Arsenal when he played random people in random places, but they still found a way to win, versus this team, it does feel like Ole tries to cover for individual vulnerabilities at the expense of the way his team wants to play. And so when they've had success in the past against City, it was sitting deep and then countering. And I think when Man United did try to counter here, it was still pretty slow, pretty indecisive. And I just think the deficiencies are there. The uh, obvious warning signs have been present and bypassed and are present again. But here we are. And that's why maybe we shouldn't talk about them too much more going forward. The, the, <laughs> the big thing with this team selection from Solskjaer for me was the fact that he, despite the fact Cavani was missing, he stuck with the 5-3-2. And as soon as that, that team sheet dropped before kickoff, I thought to myself, he, he doesn't actually understand why that system against Spurs actually works. And he doesn't understand how integral Cavani is to making mine difficult to play through and getting someone close to Ronaldo and just having that link between midfield and attack. And so sticking with 
it, it doesn't really work putting Greenwood in for Cavani and sticking in that same shape and it wasn't so much the you know Mane had almost play, uh, planned to play without the ball I know a lot has been made of the 32% possession stat but they, they almost planned to play that way it was on the attacking side of the ball where they offered so little and you, you mentioned Taylor some of the the, the, the stats about attacking uh, touches in the opposition box there that's the real stat for me that stands out that's the that's where the, the ineffectiveness of this system is, is really exposed it wasn't so much the fact that Mainet had uh, little of the ball because that was that was part of the plan it was the other stuff that didn't work it was truly men against boys though wasn't it as the cliche goes here I, yep. I don't know what to, I don't want to say much say much more about Man United because as you say Taylor we talk about them quite a lot at the moment uh, they are very newsworthy but why don't we focus on City as well they were Graham pretty spectacular in this yeah. game Some, their, their work weight was so much um, higher I, watching once again on BBC Match Today they pointed out how hard they were working to get the ball back even in the 80 something minute um, it just seemed like Pep had his plan on point and his counterpart did not yeah, this is a this is just a well coached team, isn't it? And this was this was a pretty pure manifestation of that. If you compare the passing patterns of City's midfield with that of United's, the the control they have in games through their use of the ball, and and at times it's as if my United's midfield doesn't even want the ball. It's pretty stark that comparison. And you mentioned there how City were winning the ball um, very quickly. They forced seven high turnovers, which was their highest of any Premier League game this season, and they they just suffocated Manchester. United. They couldn't get out at all. And I thought one standout player for me was uh, Yao Cancelo who had one of his, his best games for City which is saying something given how good he has been for them over the last um, two seasons. He was he was essentially playing as, as a winger in this system his heat map showed just how high he was playing up the pitch and as a, as a to repeat myself he had so much space Graham, they gave yeah. him the whole, he gave him a blank canvas up there. Yeah, they, no they did, absolutely they did, uh, but he made the most of that as, as you know, he deserves some credit for that, he, he basically uh played a big role in, in that suffocation of the United attack and, and Opta there was a good um, piece on The Athletic I forget who, who who wrote that piece but it was basically going through some of the statistical differences between Manchester United and there was a big United uh, and City and there was a big section on Cancelo so he managed 45 passes in the final third and for comparison United's team total was 73 um, Ronaldo had 27 touches and Cancelo had 125 so I know they're, I know they're very different positions Ronaldo and Cancelo but it just illustrates how so much of City's play was coming through him and and in, the, in this form he is um he's arguably the best fullback in in Europe he does that sort of Hakimi thing of of basically being a whole wing on on his own um and that just gives Man City freedom to kind of pack other areas of the pitch and control others other areas of the pitch with more players in there Indeed. Uh, Joe, my favourite quote from after this game, uh, besides Ollie's, was Ilke Gundogan saying, we were expecting yeah. them to be more offensive and to press higher. Were you, Ilke? <laughs> Why? <laughs> I mean, we've seen bits and pieces, right? Bits and pieces. But in this game, I don't think it was a surprise to see United sit back deeper. And credit to City, I thought they played really, really well. Not a lot of chances that ended up in clear-cut shooting opportunities, but man, they threatened, right? They threatened the own goal, doesn't count towards expected goals. Some of the other chances they had that didn't result in shots, but certainly caused problems for Manchester United. Clearly, I mean, those things clearly added together to a dangerous performance from City. Their counter-pressing was phenomenal. They almost always had a 3v2 advantage in the back with Rodri and the two centre-backs against Ronaldo and Greenwood, and, and that's what leads to the first goal, at least in part. They win the ball back with that 3v2 advantage in the opposition half, and it's a beautiful bit of counter-pressing from City. They passed the ball really well. They had 
tons of these weak, uh, strong side center backs. So the center back on the ball over to the weak side fullback switches. It would go from John Stones to Cancelo or from Ruben Diaz to Kyle Walker. And it would it was just these little diagonal lines, little, little shallow diagonal lines from one side of the defense to the other. And those just bypassed City's midfield over and over again. And then as soon as they did that, Taylor, you were really wise to mention this earlier, I think. It was 2v1s or 3v1s against the wingbacks for Manchester United. And this game, man, this game was just over so, so, so quickly. There was almost no adjustment that Manchester United could pull out, or really that many teams can pull out to beat Manchester City when you're already down in a game like this. Beating Manchester City is hard, and and playing against them is hard. Manchester United, in a lot of senses, made it look impossible on Saturday. Yeah, and I think that's what some of the post-match quotes, Ryan, that you referenced allude to, I think, is there is that pretty early on, what, seventh minute, I think, is the own goal, but I think from there, there was an expectation from City of like, okay, we've poked the bear, they're they're at home, we know how ruthless they can be if we give them that opportunity, we've got to be cautious, we've got to make sure we're playing smart. And then after a little bit of time, I think there was a vibe of like, oh, okay, I guess they're going to give us the ball, I guess they're going to make this easy for us. And I think, to his credit, Pep, in those same like match of the day interviews, was talking about how like we have this secret sauce that we're working with, and like, you know, we, we sprung some surprises on them, and I appreciated when they went back to the the pundits. It was Danny Murphy and Alan Shearer. They were both just like, no, it's not a surprise. They knew exactly what you were going to do, and they didn't prepare for it. And I think that is sort of the story of the day is Man City had a plan, and I think part of that plan was an expectation of having to figure out what Manchester United were doing to kind of stifle them, to limit uh, City's attack, to limit their defensive abilities. And once they realized there wasn't much there, I think they kind of – eased into it and just played their game and got a comfortable win that could have been more. They were kind of going for a third at the end, almost as though they they were like, oh, we need to win by three? Okay, we'll make that happen somehow. But I thought it was a very comprehensively good performance from Manchester City and the opposite from Manchester United, which of course means that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer will still be in charge. He will, and you get to stew on it for a whole international break Hooray. as well, Tete. Uh, the win against Spurs is United's only league victory in five weeks. I must say, Taylor, I admire you keeping your composure during this relentless averageness that you've been uh, experiencing from your team. I mean, it's it's honest. It makes me feel bad for the players because I think that's what we've started to see to to what we've said earlier about like the players sort of being just not quite there, not being up to the level that we've seen them play at before. I have to believe it's like that the worst type of hurry up and wait situation where if they're out in public, if they're around their friends or their family members, there has to be, I will refrain from doing a bad English accent, but there have to be questions about the gaffer and what's going on and are they going to sack him and why are things going poorly? And I think about that a lot and how if that just permeates your life and if you're constantly being asked, what's going on? Is it going to be okay? Is he the right manager? Who do you want to manage? eventually it's just going to sap your confidence and that's going to be what you think about. And it's going to be about the performances aren't good. The results aren't good. Ah, I didn't make that right play. And I think the belief starts to go. And I think that's what we're seeing. And I think that's probably what will eventually force Manchester United's hand. I think that and Woodward supposedly leaving at the end of the year and somebody else having to sack Ole probably also forces that person's hand. But until then, I think we're going to have Ole Gunnar Solskjaer in charge and Manchester United continuing to be erratic. And that's where I say, let's talk about other teams. I genuinely mean that because at this point, I feel like we know against a good team they're If they win, it's probably because they play on the counter. I feel like it's a script. If they're playing against a good team and Ronaldo is starting, they're probably not going to win. If they're playing against a good team and Ronaldo isn't starting, they're maybe going to win because they're going to play on the counter and break quickly. Not trying to criticize Ronaldo, but I think that's sort of the nature of Manchester United at present. Yeah, well, the uh, that's the last episode of the Total Man United show. Then I there guess, we go. Taylor. We'll, uh, we'll park this one for a few weeks, and uh, we'll come back to them maybe when things have changed a like little it. bit. I like it. Uh, we- 
take take a quick break now. When we come back, the Milan derby, baby. This episode is supported by season three of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Total Soccer Show, we are back. Hope you enjoyed hearing about those goods and services. Uh, Serie A, Napoli remained top despite a 1-1 draw at home with Verona. Juventus returned to domestic winning ways with a 1-0 home win over Fiorentina. That brings them all the way up to... Oh, eighth. Still eighth, huh? And perhaps the biggest turn-up of the weekend, uh, the Venetian marketing project and concept <laughs> kit vehicle, Venezia. They beat Mourinho's Roma 3-2, wearing one of their current four kits that cost 90 euros each. Just saying. Uh, Graham, who knew Venezia do cool photo shoots and they play soccer? I wasn't aware. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't aware they had a team. Uh, apparently still better than Jose Mourinho's Roma, though. Yeah, they've just uh, just one win in their last seven games in all competitions have Roma. Dropped out of the top four in this one as well. Um, Taylor, Busio getting getting one over Mourinho here. Fun times? Yeah, I mean, uh, Gianluca Busio, greatest player in the history of Serie A. I think we can all agree on that. That's not at all an overreaction. But uh, no. I will say it was really fun to watch. I watched all of his touches uh, before we recorded. And I continue to be impressed by how much Gianluca Busio has sort of uh, his ability to rise to the occasion, his ability to like uh, improve his game from what the deficiencies were at the start of the season. Some of them have been uh, pretty resoundingly rectified. Others he continues to work on. But I think the development has been pretty astounding and getting the result on the weekend also pretty impressive. Very impressive indeed. Once again, finding out they're a real team. I'm amazed. Um, <laughs> Milan versus Inter Milan at the San Siro. A 1-1 draw this one in the, in the Derby della Madonnina with uh, fans for the first time in a year and a half uh, sharing the points. As I say, Milan still unbeaten though, at the top, uh, near the top of Serie A, second to Napoli after 12 games. They could have gone top, but they did not in this one. But it felt, uh, Joe, that maybe Inter had the better of this game overall. Yeah, I mean, there were certainly nice sequences of play from Inter Milan, and the way that they play, I think, lends itself to that appearance a lot of the time. I do want to give credit to Milan here. I thought they had some nice moments as well. Ibrahimovic up top, he's a target in the box, and maybe that influenced Milan's play a little bit too much. I, I really enjoyed watching Rafael Leal on the left wing uh, in, in their 4-2-3-1 sort of shape, but there were a lot of variations in how this Milan team lined up. One central midfielder in their 4-2-3-1 would pretty regularly drop between the back, uh, between the center backs or outside of the center backs to create a three-man back line in possession, and the, the full backs would, be, would, would become wing backs and step a little bit higher. The wingers would move centrally. Brahim Diaz was tucking in quite a bit on the right, into the right half space or just into the middle of the field in that vertical strip. And that three, that temporary three-man back line 
would give Milan a 3v2 advantage over Inter's front two. And I, I thought there were a lot of nice looks from Milan in possession. But yeah, of course, Ryan, Inter had some nice sequences of play. They had some beautiful switches from left to right. The wingbacks are always, not always, they're often really involved in this team. I, I've come to quite enjoy watching Inter, but at the same time, I do want to give credit to Milan because of how they played in this game and because of where they are on the table right now. Absolutely. And it was uh, Hakan Chalanolu who put Inter up, a former Milan player, no less. Really enjoyed celebrating. He must he must really hate Milan for some reason. <laughs> I'm not quite sure what the story is there. Uh, a few, few minutes later, Stefan de Vrij getting the own goal, that, own goal excuse me, that brought it even. And Lautaro Martinez had a chance from the penalty spot to make it three points for Inter, but he missed it. Graham, any idea why uh, Chalanolu was so, so, so happy and almost, he did that celebration where he was going to dive and someone pushed him and he almost yeah. like, hit the <laughs> deck. As well, yeah, yeah. He went for kind of the knee slide, and then in the midst of the of the little leap before you, yeah, someone pushed him, and so it, it, I, I think it was, it was Zeko. yeah, it was Zeko who pushes him, yeah. Uh, so he kind of botched that one, but no, I, I don't actually know why he was uh, so amped to, to score against his former team, um, but. There was a lot about this match that I enjoyed. First thing to say is it's good to have this fixture as the most relevant in Italian soccer again. So obviously last season we had these two teams at at the top of Serie A again, but obviously we had the pandemic and so this was the first time we'd had the full atmosphere. And when I was growing up in my formative years as a football fan, this match was pretty much as big as anything there was in European uh, soccer. So it's been weird for the last 10 years that that hasn't been the case. So this felt... There was almost a little bit of nostalgia about this game for me, seeing Inter and AC Milan fighting at, at the top of Italian soccer again. And um, yeah, as I say, a lot about this match I enjoyed. The most enjoyable part for me was Frank Kessie's stroll into his own box <laughs> and then his hacking down of uh, is Oglu, isn't it, for the yeah. for the penalty. I have no idea what was going on there, but I, I enjoyed the chaos of well, that moment. Can we talk about that, Graham? Because <laughs> uh, obviously Kessie conceding the penalty in, in strange circumstances there but it felt like he was fouled first and he made committed to foul when he was going to ground after being fouled am, am I reading that wrong I uh, I so I saw people on Twitter saying that for me it, it, it wasn't it wasn't and I can understand why you're saying why you're saying that there was a form of contact with Kessie but I still think that his action uh, outweighs the the slight contact that was on him where which was a pretty um I guess violent tackle through the back of uh, Chalonoglu. So, yeah. but uh, even even still, you know, looking before the tackle itself, I don't know why he. It's as if he doesn't know Chalonoglu's there, and he kind of turns back towards his own goal when surely there were better options. Even if he'd gone back to the goalkeeper. Uh, yeah, it was it was a bizarre moment, and it was it was strange because that AC Milan midfield. Kessie obviously had a, a an evening to forget, if purely for that moment. But I also thought Sandro Tanali had an, an excellent match and. What, what we've spoken previously about him on this podcast, what, what a player he's become this season. Obviously, we knew the potential he had, but he's, he's got such maturity and his surge and run, runs from midfield throughout were, were really dangerous for AC Milan. And it's his corner kick that leads to the own goal that Tamori tried his best to claim with the most yeah, he passionate did. celebration. He, he was trying <laughs> to kid everyone that he'd got on the end of that one, but he pulled the commentators. That's he sure. really yeah. did. He did such yeah. a good job. They were like, yeah. oh yeah, it must have been him. It must have been him. They never even commented <laughs> on the fact that it clearly was not him, but was one of two different Inter players. Yeah. So Tenali, I thought, was that for me anyway, was the standout for, for AC Milan. One thing I would say about the penalty, um, and I agree, I thought Tenali was really impressive. For the penalty, I think it's Kessie making a bad first touch, and I think it becomes that sort of panic sequence. But it is one of those strange moments where if you watch it thinking oh, maybe it should have been a foul for Kessier and a free kick going the other way, you might be able to see that. 
I would say if you watch it from uh, Chalanolu gains position, then it makes a lot more sense why it's a penalty. Because I think what, watching it as many times as I did, I saw Chalanolu step between Kessier and the ball. And if he takes his next, next touch, he's going to be away from Kessier in on goal and probably finishing really easily because he's gained position. And so when he steps in there, Kessier then makes contact after that. And that's when the foul occurs. And to me, I think it's Kessier losing uh, possession of the ball and then trying to make a play. It just happens in a half second. And it's so confusing that you have to pronounce his name differently throughout this conversation. Otherwise, uh, it won't make even more sense. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a very entertaining game, though, I would say. And uh, it was, as Graham mentioned, good to have the fans uh, back in this one. Milan fans had a TIFO celebrating Italian healthcare workers. Uh, and it said, Milano non dimentica. Milan doesn't forget. Um, it's interesting to note, in Italy, where I am right now, uh, COVID restrictions are still very, very strict. It's masks on everywhere, mostly outdoors as well. You can't go to a restaurant or a shop or anything without uh, proof of vaccination. So still very much taking it seriously. And the numbers are low, uh, reflective of that as well. So that was Milan's TIFO. Inter's TIFO, meanwhile, was just one uh, aimed at Milan mocking Donnarumma. So that was the level <laughs> of discourse we had uh, going on <laughs> in the stands in this game. Um uh, anything more I can just this? imagine. I can just imagine the Inter ultras kind of being like, "Oh, we were doing, we were doing that thing for this game." Like, "Oh, right, okay, we didn't get the memo about <laughs> about that." Here's here's some mocking instead. Yeah, yeah, there are slightly different wavelengths in this one, shall we say? But all good though, all good at the San Siro, gents. Why don't we take it to the Bundesliga for a second? Um, Bayern Munich uh, got a two-one win. Who'd have thunk it against uh, Freiburg at home? They opened up a four-point lead at the top of the Bundesliga uh, because Dortmund null punkt. For them, RB Leipzig 2, Borussia Dortmund 2, Borussia Dortmund 1, I should say. This one, another entertaining game here. Uh, Nkunku opening the scoring, Royce getting the equaliser with a lovely defence-splitting assist from Thomas Munier on that one. He had a great game in this one. And it was Paulson who got the winner, a deserved winner, Joseph Lowry, for RB Leipzig. I was really impressed with Leipzig in this game. And I have been, and I think I think maybe that extends to others on this show, I've been impressed at other times this season. It's just now that the results are kind of catching up to them, right? There was justifiable pressure on Jesse Marsh earlier on in the year. Maybe not a ton of realistic action that was ever going to be taken given their slow start, but it was a slow start and something needed to change. And unfortunately, it doesn't look like Leipzig are going to be making it out of their Champions League group. I say unfortunately for Jesse Marsh's sake. But man, I think they've had a number of good performances, and we've seen it in the last two Champions League match days against PSG. We've seen it earlier on in the year in the Bundesliga, and we saw it in this game. Guys, their numbers are finally painting them as a top three team in the league, even though they're not there yet in terms of the standings. They're there in terms of some of the underlying stats, expected goals for, expected goals against, the expected goal difference in each game. They're executing things fairly well right now, and I liked the game plan in this one from Jesse Marsh, sticking with that 3-4-3 shape that we've seen recently really flexible front three, right? And Kunku played mostly as a nine in the first half with Josef Paulson to one side and Sobeschlai to the other side. I love and it that switched a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Graham, I thought of you actually when I saw this lineup because you talked about it after we after we discussed Leipzig uh, on the Champions League show last week. It was a nice looking front three that fl- was flexible, rotated into different spaces. And Nkunku with that speed breaking in behind Dortmund's back line, not just on the goal, and it did happen on the goal, but several other moments in this first half, especially. He was dynamic. 20th minute, getting on the end of a volley from Gulashi, getting in behind the back line. 25th minute makes a similar run. Then you've got the goal, and then there's one of the 65th minute in the second half. He's running in behind and tries to cut it back for Paulson. And then you've got the double roulette 
that leads oh. to the shot off the bar. I mean, it's just so off good. the woodwork, I should say. Phenomenal work from Nkunku. And, and you can apply a lot of positive words to the other Leipzig players out there. Tyler Adams was covering ground and winning balls. Hedara next to him I thought was was good. Guardiol in the back wasn't perfect. Certainly he had a couple of semi-high profile mistakes, but providing service from the back line and in the left center back spot that's quickly become his under Jesse Marsh. Just a lot to like from this Leipzig team and, and not a great performance from Dortmund either, I should add. Yeah, uh, Graham, I think we can conclude that Nkuku is good at the soccers, is he not? Yeah. Um, that double spin and hitting the post uh, the, that uh, Joe mentioned there was wonderful stuff. That could have been goal of the season contender if it went in. Um, hasn't got a France senior appearance yet, though. So I guess my question for you, Graham, when does he get that and when do Bayern sign him? <laughs> I thought you were going to say, and when does he start playing for Spain? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, France are going to France. You know, they've they've got a lot of options. I wouldn't take it. I wouldn't take it personally if I was uh, in Cuckoo. But he he, we spoke about in Cuckoo during the week after the Champions League review, and he deserves a lot of credit for. It feels like Leipzig have turned a corner. So unbeaten in their last seven games in the Bundesliga, five wins, three draws, and just two defeats from their last ten, ten matches. As Joe referenced, up to fifth in the Bundesliga table now, and it, and it feels like in Cuckoo has been a, a bit of a driving force behind that and and I just really like this this front three of Poulsen and Cuckoo and, and Sobosly there's a good balance of of ball players of players making runs that's one of the things in Cuckoo's added to his game this season um, at least from memory last season he didn't make that run in behind as often as he is now um, some players are particularly Poulsen is willing to drop deep to create space for a teammate to kind of spin in behind and um, yeah this this is the attacking unit that works for the time being if you ask me and when you add in that midfield basis of Tyler Adams and Hadara and behind for some security and structure you can certainly see the team now that Jesse Marsh is, is, is settling on and, and yeah I, th- I think um, this RB Leipzig team after their international break heading into the winter break in Germany could could make some pretty significant strides. Yeah, to the extent that like I, I, I found myself wondering during the game if if Leipzig have like for lack of a better term, a technical disconnector where once one player starts having such an excellent game as Nkuku did uh, this weekend, he just goes around and starts like leaving phones off the hook and unplugging internet connections and unplugging the fax <laughs> machines so Bayern can't access the club. That's that's what I think they probably have to do at this point to stop Bayern from poaching their talent because, yeah, I think there's a lot to really, really like about Nkunku the way he... I, it's rare to me that you see these sort of like, all right, we're going to clear it long option when uh, the defense is under pressure be also their primary attacking option like Angelino twice in the first half sort of comes under pressure seems like he's about to lose it and then just pings a ball upfield that you think is like oh they're just giving possession away and then you realize no it's Nkunku in a foot race with Pongracic or uh, Hummels or Akanji on occasion and that's probably not the foot race Dortmund really wanted to happen and I do wish that he had scored that roulette because that would have been a thing of beauty but I enjoyed uh, everything else about his game. I will say, though, the highlight, the best moment of the game was Jesse Marsh being crafty. Ryan, do you know what I'm talking about? Did Marks and Crafts on the sidelines? Uh, the the poking away of the ball was maybe my yeah. favorite moment of this game. When <laughs> there's uh, For people who missed it, Leipzig have a throw. It's out of bounds. The ball's rolling towards Marsh, and uh, Daniel Mellon steps in to try like to pick up the ball to try to slow things down to make sure Leipzig can't take the throw quickly. Marsh, momentarily annoyed, then realizes that the way Mullen is, is holding it, he can just reach through, gives it one quick little jab, the ball gets poked out of his arms, but there's no contact, there's no chance for Mullen to go down and pretend like he's been hurt. And it was just, I loved that moment of attention to detail from Jesse Marsh, and he, he like kind of like nods to himself and then goes right back to screaming instructions to players. There's no let off from Jesse Marsh or RB Leipzig. 
Um, how about Jesse Marsh, uh, Taylor, the state of affairs with him? Mm-hmm. We we had dis- we discussed earlier in the season, it was a slow start to the season for him uh, in Leipzig. Uh, and he's looking very impressive now, undefeated five in a row now, playing really well, as we have mentioned. If there is a criticism, is it possibly that they don't quite control and close out a game? They had yeah. 20 minutes uh, with a lead here where they, I didn't feel like they were set to keep it at 2-1 necessarily. Yeah, I mean, it's it's... It's the, the the strange thing of football that you can be so dominant as they were, but Dortmund could have pulled something back in the 92nd minute and then it would have been a 2-2 draw and the narrative is very different. It it does feel like they need to be a bit more clinical and maybe to Joe's point as we have a break and as they're sort of rounding into form and getting that confidence, we'll start to see them add that ne- next goal or that next couple goals. There would have been one more. I can't remember. If it, I think it was Mukele uh, has the header, but is offside by about a yard. So it could have been three to one. And maybe that would have killed the game off there. But aside from that, I think you can see the belief in the team. Just little things like when Paulson subs off, the way he sort of gives that like two, two-headed fist bump to Jesse Marsh. And they're very, you can see how much this game meant to them. Their first win against Dortmund in, I think, four years, was it? Something like that. So I, I think the belief is there. If they can start getting one or two more goals here and there, I think that will be the difference between where they are now and where they would like to be, which is comfortably in the Champions League places. It's 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 the high line for me that like I know I know that's central to how they play, but there, there comes a point in a match where maybe you just drop it back, mm-hmm. you know, like five yards or so. And he, Dortmund obviously didn't have Erling Haaland in this game, and yet it still felt like for a lot of this match they were one good pass away from being through and goal. And obviously Marco Royce scores the the goal from a, a situation like that. So that that's it doesn't need to be control in terms of use of the ball. Just maybe that high line to me is still sl- it's slightly kamikaze at points from uh, from RB Leipzig. Yeah, and Joe, your thoughts on Borussia Dortmund in this one. Is it just me or they're just not great in general this season? I know they've got, uh, you know, they look tired here. They 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 went the distance in the Champions League before this one. Um, and they've got injuries, certainly, as we mentioned, Harlan not here for this one. But it, it seems like there's not a lot of belief there, if that sounds too cliche. Uh, I, I don't think I'm quite there, Ryan. I, I don't think we've discussed, or really many folks out there have discussed, how important this Erling Holland miss is for Borussia Dortmund. He's out with a hip flexor injury at the moment, and that's huge, right? Holland takes you from being a good team to being a great team, and Dortmund without him are maybe not a great team. That said, I thought going back to the Champions League again against Ajax in that first half, they were really good. They executed the mid-block well, they pressed high, they made Ajax look bad for for one of the first times this entire season. I was impressed with Dortmund, and I have been impressed with them at other times this year. This game in particular was just not a very good performance from them, right? They were too rushed on the ball, too direct at times, and also too slow on the ball. It's a weird a weird combination of things. There's this moment early on in the game when Axel Witzel is just taken off the ball by Tyler Adams, and then Adams breaks into the box and plays a good ball to Nkunku, who gets a shot off. And, and there were a few of those types of moments. Add that to Dortmund's inability at times to deal with Nkunku, breaking him behind the back line. It just wasn't a strong performance from them. I, di- I did think it got a little bit better in the second half, but I- I'm certainly not ready or willing to write Dortmund off at this point, right? Wise choice, Joseph. Uh, Tato, anything more in this game before we head off from the, from the Bundesliga? Just that uh, Graham mentioned Tyler Adams really quickly. And it, and it continues to be really fun as a fan of the U.S. men's national team and Tyler Adams to see him be such an important part of this team and not just be sort of a passenger who also has moments where he's called upon to act. But to see him 
telling people where they need to be, yelling at people if they don't do what's expected of them, getting into it with opposition players. He just seems to be such an important piece to this team. It's nice to see an American playing for a club of this stature, at least this level, uh, having that level of influence. And I don't think it's just because he has an American manager. I think it's because of the work he's put in to kind of come through those ranks and establish himself and prove that he belongs. And it makes me very happy for what's to come. Indeedy, an entertaining one, as we say, in East Germany here with a 2-1 win for RB Leipzig. We're going to take a very quick break. When we come back, we'll discuss MLS Decision Day, on which decisions aren't technically made. It's wins and losses and draws. But hey, here we go. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach, Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Total Soccer Show, we are back. Before we get to MLS, a quick stop in with our friends in Spain. Real Madrid atop after a 2-1 win over Real Vallecano. Kroos and Benzema on the score sheet there. When Kroos plays well, Madrid win. Remember that. <laughs> uh, Real Sociedad, uh, they're keeping the pace as well. they got a 2-0 away win at Osasuna. Undefeated since the opening day, they are. Barcelona, meanwhile, who have now officially confirmed Xavi as their manager, we're on a big task ahead of him. They uh, they blew a three-goal lead at Celta Vigo, drew 3-3 there. Uh, and uh, Ansu Fati late being announced as having an injury as well. So it's 
Taylor, it's not going terribly well at Barcelona. Xavi has a rather big job on his hands, I think. He really does, but at least he's not being treated with triumphant, all-conquering hero level of fanfare. <laughs> uh, it seems a bit much for a manager to be coming in from where he was to a club of Barcelona stature. Maybe he will end up being the manager they need, but it seems like maybe Barcelona could learn from past mistakes and just slightly downplay this one a little bit. Because though I want Xavi to be a good manager, and it would be very cool if he has the success, he is not a proven entity. Really, no one is a proven entity when it comes to Barcelona. We've seen that uh, many times in, the, in recent years. So the way they're sort of treating this as, all right, we figured it out. Now we're going to be good, puts a lot of pressure on Xavi and that squad very, very quickly. It does indeed. Fun times ahead in Catalonia. Fun times will head over the weekend, meanwhile, in Major League Soccer. Decision day! Woo! Um, Joseph Lowry and Matthew Doyle are going to be doing a little pod uh, to expand upon Decision Day a little later on in the feed, so look out for that one. But we're going to go through and have a quick check on it. Uh, going into this one, there are 11 teams with a chance to claim the remaining six playoff places, three in each conference. Oh, Joseph Larry, where should we start? Why don't we start in the East where the Revs uh, had uh, finished off their best season evs with their supporter shield in the bag. Uh, Montreal versus Orlando. All eyes on that one, both going for a playoff spot. Orlando getting the 2-0 win with a Sebastian Mendes golazzo, Joseph. Oh, that goal was phenomenal. I watched that live and my jaw dropped. It's an incredible shot from the left side of, of even outside the box. It's a weird angle and a, just a beautiful strike from Sebas Mendes. And uh, Orlando Orlando are a strong team, and I think they can give teams trouble in the playoffs. I'm I'm stuck on Montreal, though. I, I think I have a soft spot for them, and I kind of tweeted about this yesterday. A lot to like about what Wilfred Nancy has done with that team this year. They were in this game, and I think they had the better of the play, really leading up to that goal from Sebas Mendes. And after he scores that for Orlando, they wisely shut things down. They step a little bit deeper defensively. They're compacting space quite well, and they're wasting time like absolute champs out here. They are. They executed the the end of this game, the end of their regular season quite well. Uh, just a lot to like about this Montreal team, and I, I hope they come back stronger next year. At the same time, credit to Orlando for what they did. This was a win-and-you're-in type of game. And Orlando did exactly that and earned the sixth seed in the Eastern Conference. They did indeed. A lot to like about Montreal, as you say, Joe, but they finished in 10th, a.k.a. the Joseph Lowry spot in the Eastern Conference, (laughs) uh, where you predicted the Red Bulls would finish. The Red Bulls did not finish there, of course. They finished in 7th in this one. Yes, they did, Ryan. Well done. That was quite good. They drew 1-1 with Nashville SC in a quite predictable draw. Nashville have drawn... Not every game this year, but they have drawn a lot of games under Gary Smith. And they're going to be a hard team to face off against in the playoffs, as will the Red Bulls. Man, they have turned around, and we kind of talked about this at the top of the show. They have turned things around under Gerhard Struber. They're back to really where they should be as a group. They've had a ton of really strong results recently, pressing high, making life absolutely miserable for the opposition. I believe they have the union in the first round of the Eastern Conference playoffs. That's not going to be an easy game for Philly. Joe, I saw uh, Doyle tweeting, or more specifically Harrison Foxworth, asked Matt Doyle if LAFC trading away Walker Zimmerman might be on the Mount Rushmore of worst trade deals in the history of Major League (laughs) Soccer. How say you on that one? Oh, Taylor. I mean, in hindsight, certainly, right? And maybe in foresight, and I just lacked that foresight. The, The one thing I'll say, maybe to slightly hit back on that, is... At the time, LAFC had hit with a lot of their signings, and and they've still hit here and there, but really since that initial 
or first wave of players were coming in, it hasn't been the same for LAFC. You look at the team now and it's just so different. And part of that is because they've moved on from players that that they brought in and told those players that they were going to move on. And so some of that makes sense, but the quality of guys they've brought in since then just hasn't been up to it, right? So you can look back at that Walker Zimmerman deal and say that absolutely did not work out. I don't know enough about the history of Major League Soccer's trades uh, trade deals to say who's on that Mount Rushmore, but in hindsight, it does not look good, Taylor. Joe, how's the view from that fence? Oh, it's great. <laughs> I love being on the fence, Taylor. You should know this by now. I can see both sides. It's beautiful. Oh, Joseph, never change. Um, else, I'll go jump back to the East. Also, I think it was Atlanta who sealed the other the uh, other playoff spot, Joe, with a two one win over hot garbage Cincinnati. <laughs> they left this one. <laughs> they left this one late. Atlanta did. Miles Robinson had an equalizer in the second half, and Joseph Martinez scored a phenomenal goal at a ridiculous angle, uh, uh, plucking the ball out of the air. Just an absurd strike. Go watch it if you haven't seen it already. And then he gets subbed off a little bit later and he bows um, before he leaves the field. It's just quintessential Joseph Martinez and the character that he has become in Major League Soccer. Atlanta, I think on talent, deserved to be in the playoff picture. On form and on how they've actually been playing on the field, I'm I'm less sure. I don't have a lot of confidence in them heading into the playoffs. As I said, it took a couple of goals in the latter stages of the second half for them to actually get past Cincinnati. A lack of final third structure, a lack of possession structure. They didn't cause Cincy many problems at all in the first half, and it took them a lot of time in this game to actually break through. So I don't have a lot of faith heading into the playoffs. That could turn out to be incredibly foolish um, regarding Atlanta United, but... Uh, as we've already decided and proven on this show, not very good at predictions. <laughs> well, why don't we head to the place where Nashville will be next season, the West. Um, <laughs> Colorado winning uh, the the conference with a 5-2 win over the aforementioned LAFC. Uh, the Sounders are finishing in second. They can only get a draw at Vancouver. Interesting one, Joe, with Real Salt Lake's 1-0 win over Sporting KC to get their spot, which also put the Galaxy out of contention, a twofer, if you will. Yeah, there was so much going on in the West. I had the Galaxy in Minnesota. Okay, I I don't like to double screen games. I can't focus on it. It doesn't work for me. I had to do it yesterday, guys. I had the Galaxy in Minnesota up on the TV. I had the Rapids in Colorado on the computer. I was also flipping and and trying to catch some of Seattle and Vancouver to see Graham's. I taught you well. Yeah, to see see Graham's (laughs) beloved Ryan Gold. And then as all this was happening in the later stages of these games, then Demir Krylak goes and scores a goal for RSL to get them in the playoffs as the Galaxy end up drawing 3-3 with Minnesota United, which was not enough for the Galaxy. It was enough for Minnesota to get them the fifth seed. But RSL snuck in and grabbed that last place in the Western Conference. Vancouver ended up in sixth. And while all that was happening, Colorado, I mentioned it already, Colorado stomped LAFC. Ryan, you mentioned it. It doesn't matter who mentioned it at this point. 5-2 win for them. (laughs) Robin Frazier, who, who has led this Rapids team to the top spot in the Western Conference, which is incredible. They have, I believe, the lowest salary spend in all of Major League Soccer. They're using their funds efficiently. They had a nice trade to pick up Mark Anthony Kay from LAFC earlier on this season. They played well in this game. LAFC, for their part, are not the same team that they used to be. I would be shocked if we see Bob Bradley coach again in Los Angeles, at least anytime soon. It seems like he'll be headed north of the border to Toronto at some point. I don't know anything there. That's just me listening to what people who do know things are actually saying about things. But man, just a bonkers bonkers end of the regular season in the Western Conference, Ryan. Mm, many decisions made, Joseph. Many decisions made. Um, <laughs> are you hearing the uh, carousel of managerial movement starting up, Joseph? 
Uh, I don't hear anything at any point, Ryan Bailey, but it would not surprise me if we start <laughs> to see some of those things happening. It's a short offseason. This is interesting, I think. It's a short mm-hmm. offseason for Major League Soccer this season. Uh, MLS Cup is on December 12th, I believe. That should be a Saturday. It might be the 11th if it's not. Whichever of those days is a Saturday. That's when MLS Cup will be. And then the regular season starts up again February 26th, if I remember correctly. The season's starting much earlier than it did this year and and earlier than it's done in years past because of the World Cup that will be taking place in November. So MLS will be done with their season. Oh my God, are we already planning for that World Cup? Is that what time it is? It's it's crazy, right? So it actually kind of works out pretty well for Major League Soccer with their weird schedule anyway. But the season's going, the off-season, I should say, is going to go really quickly. So a lot of the moves that we expect to see carried out and really deliberated on over the off-season, those things are going to be happening quicker, I would imagine, Ryan. Graham, so, if you're, if you're um, thinking about the, the planning going ahead for the World Cup, wait till you find out what these international breaks are for. <laughs> yeah, that, that, well, I'm, I'm not used to them being for anything, in Scotland's case. I just presume we play games every so often for a bit of a runaround. <laughs> Taylor, are you going to jump in there? Yeah, sorry about that. Uh, Joe, my, my, my question for you, I'm definitely asking this as a DC United fan. Which teams or team do you think that didn't make the playoffs is in the best position? Because obviously there are some that maybe are going to have to do a lot of rebuilding and changing, and then there are some that maybe can back themselves to continue what they've been doing. And I'm wondering who the teams are that you think shouldn't be so upset or shouldn't be as upset to not be in the playoffs. Yeah, I mean, everybody's going to be upset, but I take your point, Taylor, right, about teams that maybe have brighter futures but didn't make it into the top seven in their conferences. I think Columbus should be feeling okay. They still have a lot of talent. This was a poor performance this season from them coming off of an MLS Cup win last year. But in the East specifically, and then I'll hit the West quickly, I look at DC United for one and Montreal for two. And and maybe Chicago and Toronto because they have some solid resources there and there's going to be some changes, at least from a coaching standpoint. But based off of what we saw this season on merit, DC and Montreal should feel extremely disappointed on missing out of the playoffs because they were really strong this year, I think at least. The numbers liked them a lot. I enjoyed watching them. Hernan Osada did really good work in D.C. Uh, Wilfred Nancy did really good work in Montreal. I would be shocked if those teams don't take another step forward next season. And then you look at the you look at the West quickly. The LA Galaxy, they end up in eighth, but a lot of what Greg Vanny did this year was to overhaul the team's tactics after the end of the Guillermo Barascalotto era. And I think he did a pretty solid job of that. I don't think the season should be viewed as a success for the Galaxy. Maybe maybe it should, at least from the on-field standpoint. But there's talent there already. I think they have the resources to go out and get more talent to add to what they've got. And, and I think Greg Vanny is a very good soccer coach. So things should be all right in LA, at least in, in Carson after the season. And and Joe, looking ahead to the, the teams that are in the playoffs, obviously everyone will point to the Revs given their historic, you know, points tally and, and the Rapids finishing top of the West. But who are the who are the teams who maybe finished slightly lower down the conference tables who have put together a run at the right time and have that, that momentum? Obviously a big a big thing is always made of that with the MLS play, MLS playoffs. Who who are the teams that maybe could surprise people by going deep in the playoffs? I could see the Red Bulls out east causing some real problems. They're in good form right now, and just the way that they play, so aggressive, so high with their pressure, it's miserable to play against. And I could see them causing some real issues for their opponents in the playoffs. If they if they are able to make a run, I would not be surprised there. In the West, it's hard to count out really any of these teams, with maybe the exception of RSL sneaking in at the last minute. I don't think that's 
totally deserved. Vancouver and Ryan Galdgram could make a little bit of a run deep down in, in the West. Minnesota as well, right one spot above them. They were leaky in the second half against the Galaxy, and they have been leaky in other moments this season. But man, it kind of feels to me like they have the right recipe here. They play a 4-4-2. They're usually pretty compact defensively. They'll press a little bit. They have one of the best players in all of Major League Soccer and Emmanuel Reynoso as their 10, an Argentine creator. He's phenomenal. And then they added some talent around him this season, in the middle of this season. Specifically, I'm looking at Franco Fragapane on the left wing. He is a really tricky, fast, driving winger on that left side. He's a great complementary piece to Reynoso. And then they added a nine as well, Adrian Hunu up top, and, and he threatened the Galaxy in moments, and he's threatened opposition defenses a lot this season since since he's actually been in Adrian Heath's lineup. I could see them causing some real issues for their opponents in addition to the kind of usual suspects, and by that I mean the Seattle Sounders. I should add, I think uh, Vancouver interim head coach Vanny Sar- Sartini I saw last night more or less guaranteeing that they were going to beat Sporting KC, which nice. felt like a, uh, a statement that will go on... Uh, Billboards in both locker rooms or corkboards in both locker rooms. Absolutely. I can't wait to see Peter Vermees uh, be angry. Yeah. Well, I, I, that's no normal. That's no different than normal, I guess. But about He's that ranting about something else right now, but I'm sure he'll move on to that uh, later on this week. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we had the golden boot go to NYCFC's Valentin Castel- Castellanos. Excuse me. Got another goal on the season to bring it to 19 in a 1-1 draw with the Union. Eight assists for him, two as well. And Joe Chris Wondolowski announcing his retirement at yeah. uh, PayPal Park after scoring in the 1-1 draw with Dallas. Uh, his 171st career goal. A phenomenal moment for Wando. He was choked up addressing the fans and, and he chose to make his retirement speech out on the field, which feels like the most Wando thing of all time. An incredible career, an incredible moment for Chris Wondolowski. The golden boot race that you mentioned, Ryan, really came down to Valentin Castellanos and, and Ola Kamara for DC United and NYCFC reverse, respectively. I didn't present that information in a very easy format. Um, I, I have some beef, not with Castellanos winning the golden boot. He is a phenomenal number nine that causes tons of issues for opposing center backs. Uh, I, I have some beef with that award being decided, the tiebreaker being decided uh, with assists. To me, that makes just no sense. I I believe Castellanos and Kamara ended the season with the same number of goals, and the tiebreaker is assists for the best goal scorer award. I does that make sense to anybody else? Am I missing something really obvious here? I just don't know why you would use assists as a tiebreaker for it should, an award it should be about goal, scoring. It? Goal. <laughs> Always golden goal, Ryan. Actually, silver goal. Yeah, do you take that back? Silver goal. A better to be I totally take your point, uh, Joe. And would a better tiebreaker not be who's had like the fewer shots yeah. over the like who has a better conversion or, rate? Yeah, that's not bad. Or like who scores in more games, or or maybe non penalty goals. Just I, at least one of those three, and, and I'm open to other suggestions. Just not assists. That just doesn't make any sense to me. All that said, congrats to Castellanos, who I don't think will be in Major League Soccer all that much longer. Maybe it's um consequential goals. Um, Joe, which ones win more points? Could yeah, that that's ten? not bad. That's not bad. Yeah, I like it. All right, Joe, uh, your last chance to say something, uh, some more nice stuff about the Ripples, because I understand they're holding you under duress at the moment, and you're saying some nice positive things about them. Anything, else, anything more? <laughs> no, I think that about does it for me, Ryan. I am not afraid of you social media admin. Come at oh! me. Oh! <laughs> All right, Joe, Joe, just blink twice if the social admin are holding you under duress right now. We'll Ryan, this okay. is a bad time to tell you that we're not on video right now, just audio. So I've been blinking the entire time, and no one has reached out to help me. Joe, blink louder. That's the obvious solution. Okay, working on it, working on it. I heard that one. I heard that blink. Okay, good. 
We're going to have to edit out out those blinks in post now. Thanks very much, Taylor. (laughs) Uh, I think that just about does it for the Total Soccer Show weekend review. Thank you very much, (laughs) listener, for joining us on this journey. As we say, um, if you want to hear more about MLS Decision Day, uh, Joseph Lowry is going to be back with Matthew Doyle to expand upon that. But for now, Taylor Rockwell, a pleasure as always, sir. Uh, you as well. Anytime we get to the audibility of Blinks, I think it's the right time to end the show. Yeah, not the 182 kinds either, because we no. like those being audible for the most part. Graham <laughs> Rusbin, thank you very much. You're, you're welcome. I'm glad that I managed to stay awake and not <laughs> cough too much. I'm always glad you do those things on our podcast, Graham. Thank you very much. And Joe Lowry, once again, thank you very much. You got it, Ryan. Thank you. Listener, we'll be back for another one. Check your feed. Bye!